test our wings and see if what we've been doing here has developed into a, a strength, a quality of endurance. If we've matured in our ability to see through the delusion of the world enough to spur us to keep practicing at home when the conditions aren't so good, when we might not feel inspired, when there's so much on our minds, so many distractions, so many things pulling on us, not to mention our duties and responsibilities, which take up a lot of time. So what can we do to emulate this situation? We can have a shrine. We can promise ourselves a certain time every day when just as we eat to feed the body, we take time to feed the mind. And we don't skip meals. Because if we do that, we will starve our aspiration instead of starving the hindrances. So eating and being nourished by the Dhamma and the wisdom of mindfulness, concentration, and growing in wisdom 
helps us to keep the obstacles at bay, helps sustain us on the path, and requires constant repetition for that to be effective. Those of you that have a regular practice know how fluid it is to move from that into retreat mode, and that if there's a gap, how hard it is to recover the calm, the settledness, the inner endurance that we gain from regular practice. So don't underestimate the power of that. And the very foundation for the whole thing is to take precepts, take them up, know them by heart, repeat them often, every day. Ponder them. See how they support daily life situations. I know from my own experience how much taking vows can impart a strength and courage at moments least expected, which I didn't know I had. Just reflecting on what I promised myself, what I committed to. Why should our commitments to bring forth the truth from within us be any less than all the other commitments we make in life? We might examine what priority we give that. Here, we learn, we're reminded of the value. And then we get distracted with so much that might become dim or it might recede into the background. But we really need to establish these supports in our lives on a regular basis to be reminded in the middle of the din of the world what's important. What will sustain us? What will give us our moral integrity and the courage and the inner verve to navigate the tricky currents of life? If you can just remember four things among the many other four things, the Four Noble Truths, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the Four Right Efforts, There are lots of fours, and there are lots of fives, sixes, sevens, eights, etc. Among these things, four of them are, what is your aspiration? What is your effort? These are things to examine frequently. What is the mind doing? Where is the mind? What are we able to penetrate through to and investigate? What do we really know? Are we inquiring into the news of the world, but we don't really even know the news of our own breath? Our newest breath is not in our consciousness. slightly reworded, these are the four bases of success on the path. Chanda, Vidya, 
chitta, vivamsa. Those are the Pali words. So chanda speaks to aspiration. What do we want? What is our highest aspiration? We have many aspirations. We want to be good. We want to be happy. We want to be successful professionally, as parents, as siblings, as children to our parents. But what is our deepest aspiration? What do we aspire for that goes beyond all of these manifestations that are on a worldly level? And we ask this as spiritual seekers. I don't think there's anyone here who isn't a deep, dedicated spiritual seeker. If you weren't, you wouldn't be doing this work. So in consideration of that, the spiritual seeker aspires for a high and noble wisdom that is far from the dust and confusion of the world. And that wisdom is within our range. So one who aspires towards it learns to trust that yes, this I can do. And we gain that trust by taking refuge in the Buddha's own awakening. We have deep confidence that the Buddha was fully awakened and he taught and provided a map of consciousness for the purpose of awakening, not for any other purpose. He also provided so much instruction that to begin with, the whole teaching on the Four Noble Truths of suffering, its origin, its cessation, and the path leading to its cessation. So our aspiration is not an idle one. It's not an unrealistic one. But we have to bring into that aspiration a concentration. These four bases of success are dependent upon our ability to concentrate on that. So if we get deflected by worldly aspirations, then our energy is running out to other currents. And those currents will sidetrack us and take us off course. So if we suddenly find ourselves unable to fulfill that aspiration, we only have to examine the direction that we're going and we can see we're not on course. Instead of flapping about and, and complaining that we're not on course, just getting up and reorienting ourselves properly for the cultivation of right wisdom, right view, right understanding. That's the pillar. Just set that straight, set your compass on the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Noble Path, the direction that the Buddha points us in, the direction of Nibbana. Pull out the map, set up your cushion, light the candle on your shrine, and sit there 
every single day. Keep the hearth warm. If we don't remind ourselves, then we will get so off course that the distance from what we love and cherish will become painful to us and will be a discouragement. I can't do this. But that's false. We really need to only examine the way back to the way and begin again. And this very realization of the distance should be a goad to us to pick ourselves up and return to what we deeply value and aspire for rather than compromising continuously. We just have to see the attachment and let it go instead of holding up something that will further obstruct us. We ourselves are the architects of our own obstacles, no one else. And no one can remove them for us. There's no one to blame, not just in this regard, but in resolving anything. Blaming is futile and unskillful. We have to take responsibility and respond ably, being able to respond well. That's all. We know how to do that. Put down that which is preoccupying us and concentrate deeply, wholeheartedly, with all the strength left in us towards that which we deeply cherish and value. Set ourselves on course again. This is what happens when you're lost at sea. You get out the map and you try to figure out where you are and you turn your boat and set yourself back on course. I know what that feels like. Before I became a nun, I was an avid sailor. I've been out at sea and lost at sea and had to find my way back. I actually did a transatlantic crossing and we were chased by a hurricane and went way off course and we managed to tack our way back. So in the sphere, we can tack our way back. Even if there's a strong wind that we have to go towards, just tack sideways and then tack sideways and find the route back, it's doable. Where the intention is strong, where there's an informed wisdom, just from having done a little bit, we know the value of this, then like a a thirsty being lost in a desert, we find the water. We set our heart on it and we find it. A place from which we can have a cool, refreshing drink to sustain us. This is the concentration of our highest wish, our most profound, most noble intention. To free ourselves from all suffering, from all delusion, from greed, from anger, from any form of ill will, 
from ignorance. And people will tell you, ah, very selfish work you're doing. But actually, by rescuing ourselves from the ignorance and delusion of our worldly pursuits and activities, we make way for others to do the same. We enable that wisdom to grow in the world because others will be encouraged as well. It's like creating a trail in the jungle. If you cut down a trail, clear a trail in a deeply overridden area, then other people will find it and follow it. So we have to be brave like pioneers, not expect it just to be cleared for us. No one will clear a trail in our own lives. We have to do it. We have to examine at every step, what am I looking for? Where am I going? How do I set myself on the trail? How do I persevere? What does my mind do in that going forth through the wilderness? And what am I learning? What am I gaining from this? How does that further propel me forward? So the next basis of success is concentration of effort. We don't put one foot in front of the other, nothing happens. That's figuratively sitting in front of the shrine. And it need not be a shrine. You could be meditating on the train on your way to work. Really, the shrine is in the heart. The temple is in the heart. And we use these props like a, a, a centerpiece somewhere in your home where you put sacred objects. If possible, not on top of your TV set. (laughs) It's very hard to venerate a spot that's on top of a TV. Put the TV in a corner on the floor. Just put it out completely. That might happen. Giving up TV, of course now, The computer has replaced TV pretty much. Or even your cell phone. How many days can we spend apart from this thing? How much does it occupy our attention? Right effort, the right use of our energy, is a huge component of this commitment. Without it, the path will grow back so quickly like the grass after a rain. It just pops right up. You just cut it. There it is again. Just shave my head. They grow back to do it again. We have to keep the trail clear of weeds. And all these gadgets and these entertainments, distractions, sometimes these things can be really important. You come home from a stressful day at work and maybe you get in touch with a friend from the past who's lost and needs a bit of 
encouragement. That actually can give you a sense of well-being. If you can help someone, encourage them, then you feel good about yourself. You sit down in front of your shrine and make more effort on the path. Serving others, instead of distracting ourselves with the state of the world, the state of politicians, all the gossip that goes on in the news, etc., etc., we could be spending time volunteering for hospice, I'm sure many of you do, helping our parents, a sick parent, a sick relative, taking care of your neighbor's garden because they're not well, practicing kindness, random acts of kindness, of goodness, developing that quality. There are many ways to use energy for the sake of our highest aspiration. And these ways are usually based on the precepts. And then there are, of course, the more rarefied uses of energy based on the practice of mindfulness when we're actually sitting. Specifically, the Buddha talks about the four right efforts. And these are paramount because a lot of our mental space is taken up with greed for sensory gratification, desire for pleasure, or the craving to get rid of things that bother us, including unwholesome mind states like anger. But we don't do it skillfully. We go to a movie instead. Now, that will probably have an effect because of forgetting, not because of actually addressing the unskillful mind state. But in the practice of mindfulness and clear comprehension, we directly encounter the obstructions in the mind and we know them for what they are. Because of our clear understanding, we're able to name them and cut them right there in their tracks so they don't deflect us from our aspiration. There's a certain vigilance and diligence required in that so that when we sit down to practice and the mind is watching, watching the breath and then suddenly you remember something that happened in the morning or a few years ago. Just the memory of it will bring rage. First we were sitting quietly and suddenly the mind is on fire with anger. How do we deal with that? We really need to bring mindfulness and clear comprehension to the fore. Knowing anger as a poison and abandoning it. We know that it's arisen and we let it go We don't cling to it. We don't feed it. We don't stoke it with more memory. We just use that sharp sort of wisdom that points at it and pops it because it's it's just a thought. It's a very powerful thought. It's an inflamed thought. It's already translated into your blood running quicker and the body contracting or heating up. But at its root, it is a passing TIA. It's a transient, inhospitable, 
ineffective, insidious, and abominable, I should say, (laughs) kind of emotion. Not to be harbored, not to be given shelter. This is not a refuge. This is not a place of abiding for the mind. We have to see that. We have to understand the danger and find the escape from it. And the escape is to know it there, to guard the mind by cooling, turning away from, renouncing, relinquishing it, abandoning it, and turning the mind immediately to that which supports us, which is non-anger. What will bring us non-anger? Present moment, awareness, the breath, the body, remembering the Buddha. Remember the qualities of the Buddha. Remember the possibility of waking up to the truth of how we are. We are not this anger. It is just a thought in the mind. It is impermanent. It is dukkha, big time. And it's empty. It's not who we are. It is truly empty. The only power that it has is our own clinging to it, our own listening to it, our own attention on it. If we pay more attention to it, it gets bigger. It blows up into justifications for why I should be angry. There is no one to be angry. The truth is so available for us to see. Who is angry? Right there in reflecting on the emptiness of this being. I do not exist. I, the I, the ego, will never be enlightened. And the ego will never be angry because there is no such thing. This is a truth that we have to investigate. That comes with the fourth basis of success. Investigation states the importance of concentrating our effort to buoy and promote this kind of sharp, clear comprehension based on mindfulness that is diligent, alert, and continuous. It's not casual. It's not once in a while. It's not shallow. It has to be very penetrating to inform consciousness, not this, not this, again and again. Picking up what supports us, abandoning what doesn't. Now that's easier said than done. But this concentrated and sublime effort, it's a noble effort. It's courageous. It's heroic. Nothing short of it. As if you had to sail across a huge ocean takes a bit of knowledge. You've got to understand a few things. But you have to be willing to take a risk. Big, open, unknown space. What happens if I drown? If I drown on the way to enlightenment, it's worth it. And so you step out into the unknown. And you don't use anger or grief or sorrow or disappointment or all those things that we keep going back to because they make us feel alive somehow. We don't take refuge in that. We take this bare course 
of being in the present moment, letting go of the past. There is no future. I have just one breath. That's my boat. And we set sail. Right effort means tack in a big wind, a wind of anger, a wind of resentment, a wind of jealousy, a wind of greed, a wind of pleasure, a wind of joy. Mmm, yum, yum. I'll just stop here. Wait a minute. You have an ocean to sail. You're going to stop and enjoy this little port? How will you ever get out into the vast sea in front of you, waiting to be discovered? The treasures there that await us are beyond all these flimsy, pale, impoverished offerings that the world is giving us, has given us. And the world very much approves of us staying in the harbor and consuming these edibles. But we have to starve the hindrances, literally. Starve them, shrink them, and they will reappear again and again until we reach the first threshold of safety in this realm, which is Sotapanna, the stream enter. We enter the stream of the noble ones. And that gives us a true refuge. We will never again believe so much in all these delights of the world. We will give up the view that there is any solid self. Self view permanently dissolved. We will give up the belief that rites and rituals can free us. And we will never again doubt the refuge in awakened wisdom, that which the Buddha accomplished in the power of the Dhamma to free us and of raising up the vision of the Dhamma within us completely and taking refuge in all those who are on this spiritual journey. Accomplish it, make it possible, and accompany us. We follow them and we are followed. And together we are a force in this world. This is the power of spiritual friendship. There is nothing like it. The Buddha called it not 50% of the path, but 100% of the path. Spiritual friendship, at first, we rely on others. Eventually, we are quite alone on the path, and we are our own spiritual ally. In fact, it is the Buddha, our own Buddha nature, which we carry within us, the Buddha wisdom that matures within us and becomes a light that shines on that path and leads us onward so that we never tire until we accomplish the way. No matter what, we could lose everything in this world. Everything. Even our life. But we would not give up 
this way. We would not give up the work. We would not be distracted from it. Because it is more precious than anything. When the Buddha left Yasodhara, his wife, in the prime of his youth, with his little baby son, sleeping at the breast of his mother, in the night, he left them. As dear to him as they were, even after lifetimes coming back together again and again in different forms, Yasodhara and the Buddha having been reborn many times together, and here they were again, husband and wife. She a most perfect wife and this perfect little child, knowing that he could become a Buddha. He left, he gave that up to fully accomplish the way for the sake of all beings, for even higher blessings. And she in turn afterwards joined the order, became a nun and achieved arahantship and so did his son when he was of age. Through relinquishing all that the world dangles in front of us, we gain the strength, the perseverance, the fortitude to keep going on this path. The first effort is to promote and grow all those wholesome things in the mind that have already arisen and to promote and invite and welcome all those wholesome qualities that are not yet mature within us, to practice and grow them. Why not? Oh, I have so many problems. There is no problem except the word itself. Use those problems as encouragements to overcome them as emblems they're just a sign for us this is an obstruction clear it cut it turn away from it abandon it let the mind be empty just like when we practice we try to have consciousness that is free of phenomena just awareness, aware of itself. And the same problems, they're just phenomena arising and ceasing in consciousness. We call them problem, but we can easily call them phenomena or a sign, an emblem, a sound, a train. Are we going to run away from this beautiful center because there's this train passing? We can become obsessed by a sound. Well, that sound can be our train to freedom. There it goes. We can steamroller forward, just like that steam engine. We can set the tracks in the direction of Nirvana. The third and fourth efforts are to abandon, as we mentioned, abandon the things that are dangerous. Know them immediately, recognize them, learn to know our enemy. 
And the biggest enemy is not knowing the poisons for what they are. That's where satipanya is so vital. This is pride, either thinking we're superior or it's inferiority conceit. I'm not good enough or I'm just as good as everyone else. It's all believing in a self. But to just come open-heartedly with palms together, receiving whatever gift we receive, even if it feels like a dagger. Painful, we receive it as pain, impermanent, painful, not who I am. This is not myself. This is not me. Any uninvited, unwholesome qualities that are banging down the door into the mind, we guard the mind against them. We are so diligently mindful that they can't get a foot in the door. But they try. The hindrances, their job is to keep trying. They are actually our friends because if they didn't keep dogging us, we would never keep running towards Nibbana. We have to congratulate the hindrances. They are supporting us to get more courageous, work up more energy, persevere, endure. We can endure much more than we realize. How many people have jumped into a fire to save their loved one? Would we jump through fire to reach for what we love, what we value, what we cherish, the truth that will set us free from any flame at all? This is how we concentrate our energy towards the goal. And then that also speaks to the concentration of the mind. And in concentrating the mind, we have to keep re-examining what is the weather in the heart? What are the tools that we're putting into use? And what are the results? We keep checking in the state of the mind. If there's too much joy, we have to balance it. If there's too much concentration, we have to balance effort. With joy, we use equanimity, the factor of equanimity. If there's any ill will arising, we use loving kindness, forgiveness, compassion for others as for ourselves. If there's a lack of energy, We reflect on the preciousness of human life. We direct our minds at the object more precisely. We get up and do walking meditation. We try to rouse up the energy. We take a rest. We have to take great care to pick up messages that are skillful that point us in the direction we want to go and don't leak out energy from the strength we're gathering for this journey. 
So how to use the strength of the mind, concentrating the mind, learning to be very one-pointed on the path, developing the qualities of metta, karuna, mudita, upeka, a patient endurance. Patience is the highest austerity. To be patient even when things are not going well. Follow the map. Follow it, mindfulness, awareness, present moment. Gentleness, virtue, valiant, really committed, vigilant. We concentrate our energy in that way. Then we begin to experience the joy, the happiness, the exhilaration of insight that arises as a gift. Not, I'm going to get that insight. That's just pride and conceit. Gently, gently, patiently, humbly, using the tools and receiving with our palms together the gifts as they come. If they don't come, we have to ripen the parami, the perfections that will bring us to the goal. We can't just will down the barriers. We have to perfect our virtue, our generosity and virtue, our determination, our effort, our wisdom, the clarity of our wisdom, our renunciation, giving up selfishness, our resolution not to give up. Very important our loving-kindness, our concentration of mind, the steadiness of our effort, and the balance with which we hold things, the ability for the mind to let go that which hinders it and to gather towards it that which supports it. We have to develop those qualities to be able to receive the gift of Nibbana. It's a preparation like a fruit that needs to ripen on the tree to just respect and honor the process so deeply, so humbly, so joyfully, so gratefully with a gratitude that goads us on, that generates all these qualities into a deeper and deeper maturity. It may take lifetimes How many lifetimes have we been circling already? Now that we know the possibility, we will never give up. We just keep going. This is the concentration of mind and the concentration of vimangsa, which is investigation. It's just to keep seeing what qualities of mind have we developed, are we developing? Is it greed? Is it impatience? Well, then in that case, bring the patients in, practice it, support it, test it, test our metal. Life is a constant spiritual test. Some of us get tested much harder than others. We need not protest these tests. We need to acknowledge, receive, sometimes we feel shredded 
by these tests. And we slowly put the pieces back together with the best glue we can find, which are the tools of the Dhamma, mindfulness, clear comprehension, the wisdom to see this is not me, not who I am. So the test is just like a fire that we have to put out, a fire of greed, a fire of hatred, a fire of delusion that we have to put out to illuminate the mind, to bring in the light, to give us the clarity to move forward on the path, not to be hindered and burdened with these passions and attachments and distractions and hindrances, but to put them down again and again and again. Seeing, examining where we are in this process and using these qualities of patient endurance and reflectivity and wisdom to break through the bonds, to ripen again and again and again, constantly. It's not, oh, now I've done it, so I don't have to do that anymore. No, again and again, we have to patiently endure and be resilient in the face of the next test and the next. We're just like still this high mountain in front of us. We've just scaled, we don't know how many. What is there to do? Just keep step by step by step. Finding the good company and feeling the joy of being one on the path, one on the way to awakening. What an honor it is. What grace, what a gift. And whether or not there's an attainment, we don't need to be checking that all the time. It doesn't matter. Until we completely eradicate these kilesas and uproot them, there is work to be done. Be busy with the work without letting the ego interfere by wanting stripes, getting graded. Let us be excellent in our virtue, in our pure intentions, in kindness and gentleness. How do we treat others? How do we treat ourselves? How do we care for each other, for the world? for the path, for the goal, for the mind, for the heart, for the awareness of one breath. So I offer you that for your contemplation tonight. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.